You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book of Ezra. Here's Nate. Well, the book of Ezra is really a book about restoration, rebuilding, um, a book all about revival and uh, return, really. And the book of Ezra records really two monumental moments in Israel's history that really need to go uh, together. Of course, the time uh, frame that we're dealing with is sort of the latter end of the, the Old Testament era. You had, of course, the era of the kings, starting with Saul and then to uh, David and then to Solomon. And then you have the civil divorce of the nation of Israel when Solomon's son Rehoboam took the southern portion of Israel, Judah and Benjamin, and a man named Jeroboam took leadership of the northern ten tribes. And you had king after king after king in both the north and in the south. And in the north, there tended to be perversion and idolatry and great evil. And so eventually in the north, the Assyrians came and drove out uh, the people of Israel and scattered them. But in the south, things weren't always all that great either. And so, uh, you know, they had the temple, and so they were able to worship the Lord, but it was very hollow, very empty. There was still a lot of idolatry, a lot of evil. And so finally, after years of rebellion, it culminated in God promising that King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians were going to come and drive out the tribes of Judah and Benjamin there in southern Israel, that Jerusalem would be destroyed. And so the book of Ezra all of that is past tense. They've been in Babylon now for a long period of time. The temple has been destroyed for over 50 years. Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon are no longer the prominent players. Now there's a man named Cyrus who is the king of Persia, and he is going to command the people of God to go back to Jerusalem with the express purpose of rebuilding the temple. So Ezra 1 through 6 is all about rebuilding the temple, and Ezra 7 through 10 is about Ezra rebuilding the people of God. He was a scribe, a teacher, a leader. And both of these movements in the book of Ezra are separate in timeline. And so the first portion of the book is all about the courageous rebuilding uh, of the temple. And I think temple would be the key word of the entire book of Ezra, the epicenter of worship for the people of Israel. They hadn't sacrificed to God or worshiped God in the temple in over 50 years. And so this is a time of worship, to return to worship, to revive their uh, atmosphere and attitude of, of uh, devotion uh, to the Lord. And what you know from reading the Old Testament is that the moment that they do that, the moment they'll be blessed and God's glory is going to increase. And so really when you're reading the book of 
Ezra, you're reading about the revival of a nation. And I know that so often in our own lives, this is exactly what we need. We need reviving. We need something to uh, stir us up once again. We need to return back to our first love, like the church in Ephesus needed to there in Revelation chapter 2. We need to discover once again our, our adoration for God, our love for God and to worship him because when we're worshiping him, we are at our best. Just as when Israel worshiped God, they were also at uh, their best. So that's what the book uh, is communicating and that's where we're going. Let's begin now in verse one. It says in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Now, before we read the following verses and discover what it was that Cyrus proclaimed to all his kingdom and what it was that he put in writing, uh, we need to notice the setting that uh, Ezra gives to us as he launches into uh, this uh, historical record. First of all, we have the main player at the launch of this book, a man named Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, Cyrus is a fascinating figure because God had prophesied of him um, a hundred years before he was even born, before the Medo-Persian empire was even prominent, and before the people of Israel had even been taken captive into Babylon by name. In other words, before any of those events occurred, God had spoken of the man named Cyrus who was to come. This is recorded for us in Isaiah 44, verse 28, uh, on into chapter 45, verse 1. God says of Cyrus... He is my shepherd and shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. And again, in chapter 45 of Isaiah, verse 13, he says, I have stirred him up in righteousness. This is still talking. He's got a long section talking about Cyrus. And I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. And so really what you have here in the prophecies of Isaiah in chapter 44 and 45 of Isaiah is a prophecy about Cyrus uh, that he speaks about 150 years before Cyrus speaks this decree to uh, rebuild the temple. And so just absolutely uh, amazing. Now, why would Cyrus give this commission or this command? Well, he would give it from his perspective because that's just what he would do. Uh, in many of the nations around him, he would build these buffer states and do things that were favorable to the citizens uh, in each one of those nations in order to create, you know, harmony and peace. 
And so he'd done this in other portions of the world. And so perhaps there was no real genuine love for the people of Israel or God. So perhaps from his perspective, it was just a strategic move. But from God's perspective, it was to unfold his redemptive plan through the nation of Israel. And we don't know how this all occurred and how this all opened up. Josephus uh, records years later that um, Cyrus was shown the prophecies of Isaiah and wanted to fulfill them. Uh, whether or not that is true, we don't know with any level of certainty. And it's possible that Daniel was uh, a contemporary at a time in his older age, of course, with Cyrus and perhaps led uh, Cyrus to the Lord. So we just really don't have any certainty about any of that, but that's who this man is. And this record happens in the first year, Ezra records uh, for us, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. And that's the first year, not of his reign in general of over anything, but his reign over Babylon. When they finally kicked out the Babylonians and overthrew them, the Medo-Persian Empire, and Cyrus became king during that time, that was the first year that Ezra is referring to here in verse 1. But he's got a, a commission that he gives. But notice in verse 1 that Ezra doesn't record by the mouth of uh, the prophecy, by the mouth of Isaiah, that that might be fulfilled. But he says by Jeremiah, by Jeremiah. You go back to Jeremiah 25, verse 12 through 14. And the prophecy there isn't so much about Cyrus. That's not what Ezra is referring to. The prophecy about Cyrus uh, Ezra is referring to the prophecy about the people of Israel. And in Jeremiah 25, the prophecy basically was that they would be driven from and taken captive into Babylon for a period of 70 years. And after 70 years would be able to come back and worship the Lord there in Jerusalem. Jeremiah 25, verse 12 through 14, and Jeremiah 29, verse 10. And we might ask the question, well, why 70 years? Well, it was because God had set up in the law a rule for the people of Israel that when they farmed their land, every seven years they should give uh, their pieces of land rest, a, a Sabbath rest. And for 490 years, they'd neglected that commission from God. And we can understand why their greed, their lack of trust in God. And so God said, well, during those 490 years, there were 70 years that the land should have been resting. You didn't do it. So I'm going to take you away captive and I'm going to give the land that 70 years of rest. And so Ezra records here that that this prophecy from Jeremiah is now going to be fulfilled. The 70 years are up. So the Lord, verse 1, stirred up the spirit of Cyrus so that he wrote something down. And just the sovereign hand of God. And this is what he wrote, verse 2. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah and rebuild the house of the Lord, 
the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in uh, Jerusalem. So uh, Cyrus here, you just we really don't know with any certainty. It appears that there's this adoration for God and almost worship coming from Cyrus, but on the other hand, uh, this is the kind of verbiage that he would use if he believed in regional gods. And it kind of reads like that, that he believes that, well, you know, the God of Israel, he's the God over there in Jerusalem. But he basically tells the people, this is what you need to do. Uh, I'm going to pay for it. And the people around you are going to pay for it. But you need to go and build a house for the Lord. You need to build God's house in Jerusalem, the house of of the Lord. And uh, just a fascinating commission that Cyrus commits to the people of Israel. Now, I think it's semi-important to point out that his focus is on the temple. And uh, there are some prophecies about him that indicate a rebuilding of the city, which would be at least partially necessary to rebuild the temple. But when you read then the book of Nehemiah, which are events that occur after the book of Ezra occurred, what you have in Nehemiah is a time where Nehemiah led the charge at the commission of another king, King Artaxerxes, to rebuild the city. Nehemiah really didn't have anything to do with rebuilding the temple, but rebuilding the city. And so Ezra and Cyrus focus on the temple, and Nehemiah and Artaxerxes focus on the uh, city of God, the walls, the gates, things like that. And the reason that I think that that's important is because Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, received a prophecy from the Lord, which recounted, and I don't mean to be over uh, complicated at this point, but to, to make it simple, he received a prophecy from the Lord that indicated a 490-year period of time, 483 years of which would run consecutively, followed by a, a long break, and then one final seven-year period. And the beginning of that 483-year span was going to begin with the command, the authoritative command, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And uh, personally, I believe that when Cyrus commanded them to go back and rebuild the temple, I don't think that that was the beginning of Daniel's prophecy. I think the beginning of Daniel's prophecy was when King Artaxerxes approached uh, Nehemiah and said, you need to go back and rebuild the city because that was the prophecy that Daniel received. And I believe that the way that it flows is 483 years after that event is when Jesus uh, appeared at his triumphal entry. So, you know, I just wanted to point that out because I don't think that this is the beginning of the Artaxerxes prophecy uh, uh, or the uh, Daniel 9 prophecy at this particular moment. But the temple, that's the focus. That's what they are going to be uh, trying to rebuild and trying to, to get established once again, all for the purpose of that sacrifice and worship system thriving uh, once again. 
And that's really what's at the heart of this book. And so as you're approaching the book of Ezra, here's something that's just important to do devotionally. It's important to understand that our personal worship of the Lord is of paramount importance when it comes to our own health, our own strength, our own effectiveness. And if there's something off there, if we're wandering a little bit, if it's not a priority to worship the Lord, if our devotional life is growing weaker rather than stronger, if we can look back and see some stronger moments in our hearts and lives uh, than others, and we realize a real weakness at this time, perhaps this book is a book that can revive us to get back to the center of what that life of worship is all about. I know personally, just in my own life, I'm going through this uh, very similar kind of thing just right now. Uh, I um, recently uh, just had an experience where I took about a month to just um, kind of change up my schedule a little bit. And what I started doing was every morning for my devotional time, after I was done reading the word, I just got in my truck on most mornings and I drove down to our local beach. I live on the Monterey Peninsula, beautiful area. And I would just walk for, you know, 45 minutes or so uh, up, or up to an hour and just walk and out loud pray. And the thing about it was, it's not like that's the first time I've ever done that, but that used to be the standard um, of my life. It was just the way that the Lord worked with me and my own heart and life. And I'd kind of gotten away from that. I was praying more in my home um, in various ways, kneeling, sitting, standing, walking, whatever. But And so my devotional life was there, but I something wonderful began to happen inside my heart during that time. And it's been a few months now, and I'm just so uh, revived in a lot of ways. And so perhaps that's what the Lord wants to do in you as we focus on the center of worship in the nation, is to focus on the center of worship inside of your own heart. And so uh, Cyrus gives that commissioning. Now, in, as a response, it says in verse 5, Then rose up the heads of the father's houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. So you see an immediate response. It's God working. God had stirred up Cyrus. God stirred up these people. Who were they? Well, you've got heads of the father's houses. Those are leaders. And it's great when the leaders are stirred up by God. And they're of the houses of Judah and Benjamin, which is uh, makes sense because uh, the 10 northern tribes had been scattered by the Assyrians. It was really predominantly Judah and Benjamin taken away captive into Babylon. So they're the ones that are there that are going to return. And um, you have also just the people in general and the priests as well, uh, who and the Levites as well, rising up and we'll actually get a list of some of these people, their households and leaders in uh, chapter two. And all who, verse six, uh, were about them, aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. This is very uh, reminiscent of the first exodus from 
Egypt when the Egyptians gave all of the gifts to the Israelites as they were departing. And Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had, had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. Now, there's a little bit of a question of who is this uh, Sheshbazar, and uh, many people believe that this is just another name for Zerubbabel, who would eventually be the governor of Judah and have to re, uh, lead this rebuilding charge. And other than that, we're really not certain who he is, but he's uh, in an official position. He receives the money from Cyrus. And Cyrus also returns the vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the house of the Lord. And uh, you might remember that Belshazzar in Daniel 5 had defiled these instruments, but Cyrus respectfully gives them back to the people of Israel. And this was the number of them, verse 9, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400 all these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. So he lists out specifically 2,499 different vessels and then says, and then, you know, there were others. It was a grand total of 5,400 valuable pieces that were committed into our hands. Now in chapter 2, verse 1, uh, he says, now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. So they went back to the places that they were originally from. And what you have now is this record of people, not every one of the 49,000 plus people, but the prominent leaders, the family heads and all of that. You have this record, this list of who they are. And sometimes we approach passages like this and we wonder, you know, my goodness, why in the world does this have to be mentioned for us? And I think there are various reasons that the original readers would have really needed to know this information. But I think one benefit for us today is to understand that uh, uh, God is keeping track. This was a treacherous journey that these people volunteered themselves for. And, you know, it was exciting, but it was very difficult. They were really putting their lives on the line. And isn't it good to know that the God of the universe keeps record of such actions in our lives? So he says in verse two, they came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Baena. And so you have here a list in verse 2 of the leaders. And, you know, the first two are the most prominent that we'll hear about in the rest of the book of Ezra, but also in the book of Haggai and uh, Zechariah and uh, Malachi as well, uh, Zerubbabel and Jeshua. Uh, 
Joshua was the high priest and Zerubbabel was the governor, the leader. And uh, so uh, we'll learn a lot about these two men specifically. Nehemiah is also listed. Not the same Nehemiah, though, that comes 90 years later and leads them in rebuilding the city. Mordecai is also mentioned, and as well, this isn't the Mordecai that we find in the book of Esther. The number of the men of the people of Israel is then listed in verse 3. He says the sons of Perosh, 7,172. The sons of Shephatiah, 372. The sons of Era, 775. The sons of Pehath Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,812. The sons of Elam, 1,254. The sons of Zetu, 945. The sons of Zekai, 760. The sons of Bani, 642. The sons of Bebai, 623. The sons of Asgad, 1,222. The sons of uh, Adonikim, 666. The sons of Bigvi, 2,056. The sons of Adin, 554. Or excuse me, 454. The sons of Ater, namely of Hezekiah, 98. The sons of Bezai, 323. The sons of Jorah, 112. The sons of Hashum, 223. The sons of Gibar, 95. The sons of Bethlehem, 123. The men of Netophah, 56. The men of Anathath, 128. The sons of Asmaveth, 42. The sons of Kiriath Arim, Chephira and Beeroth, 743. The sons of Ramah and Geba, 621. The men of Michmas, 122. The men of Bethel and Ai, 223. So now we have less of family records and more of city and town records. The sons of Nebo, 52. The sons of Magbish, 156. The sons of the other Elam, 1,254. The sons of Harim, 320. The sons of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 725. The sons of Jericho, 345. The sons of Sena, 3,630. And so, uh, you know, I read all of these because, you know, my goodness, if these were one of my relatives, I would want this read because this is God, uh, you know, keeping uh, that kind of uh, record. But these are uh, mostly towns uh, that uh, where you had different people living and then sons of various men, descendants of different men who had towns named after them. Then in verse 36, you have the priests, the sons of Jediah of the house of Jeshua, 973, the sons of Immer, 1052, the sons of Pashur, 1247, the sons of Harim, 1017. And so the priesthood is also recorded. They would need the priests, obviously, in the reviving of their temple worship. Then you have the Levites in verse 40, the sons of Jeshua and Cadmiel of the sons of Hodaviah, 74. Then you have the singers there for the temple, the sons of Asaph, 128, the sons of the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Ater, the sons of Talmon, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hatida, the sons of Shobai, in all, 139. So you have different roles there in the temple. In verse 43, you have the temple servants, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hasapha, the sons of Teboeth, the sons of Kiros, the sons of Sahiah, the sons of Pedon, uh, Lebanon, Hagabah, Akub, Hagab, Shema, 
Shamlai, Hainan, Gedel, Gehar, Riyah, Rezin, Nakoda, Gazam, Uza, uh, Pesia, Besai, Ezna, Meunim, Nephesim, uh, uh, Bakbuk, Hakafa, uh, Harur, Basluth, Mehida, Harsha, Barkos, Sisera, Tima, Neziah, Hatifa, Sotai, Hasaphoreth, Peruda, Jaela, Darkon, Gedel, Shephetiah, Hatil, and the sons of Polkareth, Hezebaim, and Amy, and all the temple servants, and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392, verse uh, 58. That's quite a mouthful. Now the following, verse 59, were those who came up from Tel Mela, uh, Tel Harsha, Cherub, Adon, and Immer. And though they could not prove their father's houses or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel, the sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 652, also the sons of the priests, the sons of Habiah, Hakoz, the Barzillai, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillai, the Gilead, Gileadite, and was called by, her, by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there, and so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food in there until there could be a priest to consult the Urim and the Thummim. So it was very important for everyone involved in the work of the temple to be able to prove their genealogy that was necessary. And so these folks couldn't, so they would wait now for a priest to consult with God, basically, uh, on the matter. The whole assembly together, verse 64, was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 200 male and female singers. And then he lists their livestock. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, their donkeys 6,720, some of the heads of the families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priests' garments. Notice that these people, not only did they sacrifice in going, but they sacrificed their belongings. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns and all the rest of Israel in their towns. So I read all of that because I wanted to honor these people, but it's a list of, of people that represent 49,897 people. They estimate that there were 2 to 3 million uh, Jews living in Babylon at this time and only 50,000 or less than 50,000 uh, go back. Uh, that's, you know, one in 40 to 60 people that went back to Babylon and took that opportunity. And so I think the record of them is very important. They even sacrificed their own belongings. It reminds me of modern day missionaries, to be honest with you, modern day church planners, people who roll up their sleeves and sacrifice greatly for the cause of Christ. They are worthy of the honor of the church and our admiration and so uh, these people dedicated unto the Lord. If you want to see that temple worship restored, you have got to have absolute dedication. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, 
please visit us at nateholdridge.com.